Dane, Jane, are you ready? You want to make an announcement today? You want to tell them what happened? You want to do it? Oh, come on. <laughs> there's, there's something very important that happened over at the Cooper House um, that, that impacted a lot of lives and was just uh, something that uh, you probably won't hear about unless you hear it here, okay? So I want Jana to tell us about it before we go any further. I wasn't expecting this, but um, <laughs> let me breathe for a second. Um, over at the Cooper House last weekend, um, FCA hosted a weekend for coaches in the North Alabama region. Um, so I was um, blessed to be a part of that. And I was mostly serving and um, fixing the dinners and helping organize the event and putting flowers on the table, well, greenery on the table. And I just, back in the kitchen, one of the things that I've grown up in this church my whole life, and to watch them appreciate that and to watch how open we are with sharing our things and to see people blessed by that, I I just could have cried the whole day. Um, We're just so blessed that um, God just put a spirit upon our church and the Cooper House is the same way, and that we can allow for somebody to come in like that. And they had um, people fly in to do a marriage counseling for these coaches, and just that they are, they spend so much time pouring into kids that they don't have a lot of time for their wives and their families. And so these um, speakers were just pouring into giving them wisdom about how to handle their marriage. Um, so I saw bits and pieces of that, but mostly what I saw were faces and faces that I don't know in this church that support this church, that um, give money to allow for things to happen like that, and saw just the warmth that we can give. And I could not tell you how proud that I was of our church and of how those people walked away. And I had a person text me that doesn't even live here and said, Jana, I had somebody that's a friend of mine that was a coach's wife, and they were talking about how warm the dinners were there. And so I just, I'm proud and thankful and love to just be that person that's grown up with this church and just all the people that have put the time and the effort, um, you know, Jim Batson into helping, you know, redo that place and just the people that support it that go unknown, um, and then our pastor for just just being that person that just says, we're going to share, and we're going to do. Um, don't like sharing the parking lot with the Methodists, but other than that, <laughs> um, but I just want y'all to know that those things go on, and I'm sure there are bridge groups, and there are garden, you know, garden club goes there too, but I'm going to tell you just how much, you know, that, that, that is used for just, um, pouring into other people's lives and how warm it is. And, um, I was just really proud. And, and I just think that y'all need to know that that, those are the things that go on, that God just, just works mightily and that, you know, we all have a part in it some way. And I was just fortunate enough to see it last weekend. And, um, I just want y'all to just, you know, continue to ask God just to, bless this church and protect this church and this place and just keep his precious spirit over it. So thank you.
Good job. Weren't too nervous, were you? <laughs> this is, and see, that's one of the things that we were able to do with, with the Cooper House. And, and I received a note from Ralph Keel, who works there with the coaches, and he just was so thankful of, of just us letting them use that facility and, and the ministry to the coaches and their wives in particular. All right, we're in Psalm 9 again this morning. We'll go to the second half of Psalm 9. So if you're able, would you uh, stand with me and open your Bibles there? And, and I will read a section. We're really only going to deal with one or two verses, but I'll, I'll give you the, the whole section so that we understand uh, the context of what David is writing. Really, we looked through the first half uh, last week about uh, all the praises and there are some hard things that David says here that we have to work with. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we read your word today, speak to us, we pray. Open our eyes with your Holy Spirit. Descend upon us that we might understand what this means, that it may move us to action. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So Psalm 9, and oh, let me read 11 through the end of the chapter, okay? Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare among the peoples his deeds. For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Behold my affliction from those who hate me. Thou who dost lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all thy praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in thy salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made. In the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked are snared. The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before thee. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. I I don't know how we can take a lot of pleasure in reading and delving into passages that are full of the wrath of God. Now, I know that it was at at a certain time uh, in history that was the main thrust of preaching was the coming wrath of God, and basically the kind of mindset was to scare the bejeevers out of people so that they would come to Christ. Well, when we really look at the wrath of God, it is a terrible thing, and that wrath falls upon men, and it falls upon nations as well as, as, our, as David writes for us in the psalm. And I think it should really cause us a lot of discomfort and, and pain as believers to explore what happens to non-believers. Because many of us know a lot of people or some people who aren't believers. And the wrath of God is going to fall upon them unless Christ moves in their hearts before they pass away. Now remember, there's no second chance in heaven. It's not like, well, you, you die as a non-believer and you stand before the Lord and all of a sudden you go, that's what they were telling me about 
back at church all those years. I think I'll believe in Jesus now. There's no post-mortem evangelism. Evangelism happens here in this earth. Now is the day of salvation. Today is the chance to believe, not when you see Christ face to face. Now, that doesn't mean we want to shy away from judgment or just make it a once-a-year sermon. Today is the judgment sermon for your year, okay, just so you get your dose of it. No, that's not quite what we want to do. We'd much rather, hopefully, we'd much rather learn about the delights of Christ and the joy of Christ. We'd much rather know about our purpose and calling in Christ and what, how we are to live, to lift up and encourage the body of Christ and focus our attention upon his grace and, and how we can share in and experience these things in this world. I think that's what we'd much rather talk about that than rather the judgment to come. But knowing what lay ahead for the individuals and knowing what lay ahead for the nations who sink into the pit that they have made compels us, compels me as as a pastor, hopefully it compels each believer to delve into these passages and talk about the terribleness and the awfulness of the judgment to come. Now let me take a little theological detour here to explain something for us. It won't, I won't be able to explain it all because it's its own three-part sermon, and, okay? So you're going to get the short version of it and explain, in a sense, the ramifications of the phrase, into the pit that they have made. Okay? And that comes from Psalm, look, look at Psalm verses uh, 15. The nations have sunk down into the pit which they have made. Now, we think about this, and we think about this relative to salvation. If we believe that God is the one who saves us, he chose us in Christ from before the foundations of the world, and no one comes to the Father unless he draws him, then how can we say that I bear the weight of my own sin and I am responsible for my own sin if God is the one who does the saving? How is this possible? How is it that I can't get rid of my own sin by my own actions if I'm responsible for my own sin? Yet that's the plain teaching of Scripture. That's what it says. If I'm a believer, then I'm judged on my unbelief. I'm judged on the fact that I don't believe in Jesus Christ. That's what judgment is about. Well, and it's a right judgment, but yet there still is the teaching from Scripture that God is the one who saves us. How is this possible? Okay? Yet that's what Scripture says. And if you want a fuller explanation of that, you have to come to Sunday school. Okay, because that's what we're wrestling with in the class that meets in here. Well, how does free will and and God's election and and my choice and God saving me? How do all these things fit together? There's my plug for Sunday school. Okay, but that's kind of what we're dealing with here. How is it possible that that I can be responsible for this if I can't get out of it myself? Now it's hard to grasp. Back. Okay, that's our theological detour. Back to the passage. It's hard to grasp these things, but we don't dare avoid this subject of judgment. We don't run from the concept of this as believers and go, well, you know, I really don't want to think about how my neighbor who's not a believer, what's going to happen to them. I know I've lived next to them for 40 years, and we've never talked about the gospel, but I just don't want to think about that. Spurgeon makes it clear for us. It is harder still to bear the doom which must rest upon the silent minister or the unfaithful watchman who did not warn the sinner. He must therefore eternally bear the sinner's blood upon his head because he warned him not. 
After 40 years, you couldn't go across the yard and say, hey, this is the most important thing in my life. And I want you to know it because I don't want you to miss out on the glories of Christ, and I don't want you to face the eternality of judgment. Now, depending upon your neighbor, they might rejoice and come to Christ at that moment, or they might go, or that might be the end of your relationship. Who knows? But better that be the end of your relationship, and they know about the judgment to come, rather than they get there and go, you know, Baba never told me about this. He lived next to me for 40 years and never told me that this was in the works for me. Those who apply, those words apply here to every believer who fails to warn both the individual and the nation of the judgment to come. The nations turn their backs on God. They, they purposely ignore the call to repentance. They habitually and unrepentantly pursue what God calls sin. There's judgment that comes upon that. Okay, this past Friday, as many of you, many of you know, was the March for Life. And they've been doing that since uh, 1974. They averaged 400,000 people on that March for Life. There was only 200,000 this year. There was a little snow up there. You know, They're kind of weather weenies. 200,000 people in 24 inches of snow. And they march every year. Judgment will come upon a nation that digs its own pit in sin. Judgment will come upon any leader who helps, grabs a shovel and helps dig that pit. That's what scripture is telling us. It may even come upon those who don't say anything about sin. Well, who is this warning for in particular in verse 15? The warning goes out to those who have forgotten God. The warning goes out for those who have forgotten God's mercies in their lives. The day after day, we experience these great things from the Lord, but we just don't recognize that he has given them to us. We don't give him thanks. We credit our own success and our own wealth to our own abilities and our own drive, and then we make our God becomes ourselves here. Now, just a review of some of the great Puritans who have written about this. Let me sum it up this way. You thank yourself for the clothes that are on your back and for the food which cheers your spirit. And all this, while you know that the, not that the breath in your nostrils comes from him. You understand, take in a breath. The only way you can take another one is if God enables you to do that. You think, oh, come on, Rand, I, I can breathe myself. No, if God is sovereign over all things, he enables you to take the next breath. He enables you to live the next moment. And in reality, because of our sin, we have no business living the next moment, but yet he gives it to us. He gives it to us. You know, not without him there would be no marrow in your bones, no power in your nerves. Without him you would fall back to your mother dust and crumble to earth, which brought you forth. Why do you do not praise him? You have songs for your lusts, but none for your God. You have praise for your earthly friends and thanks for those who help you here, but he is as much forgotten by you as he is by the beasts that perish. You call not your family about you. You say not unto your little ones, come and bless your father's God. You lift not your holy hands over the table, thanking him for every mercy that there is. You live as though these things came to you by chance. Okay? We don't believe in chance. We don't believe in luck. We say to somebody, good luck. We'll go, oh, I don't mean good luck. What do I say? What should we say? 
God bless you. God's providence be upon you. Trust in his way. Don't trust in luck. Luck is nothing. God is real. Why is God not in all your thoughts? He is as much forgotten by you as though he were dead and had ceased to be. Consider how constantly you forget his laws. When there is an action proposed to you, how seldom do you pause and say, is this right in the sight of God? Often we say, can I do this? Or do the laws of men prevent me from doing this? The real question is, is this right in the sight of God? Because he is the one who we will face judgment before. Is it right in his sight? You are careful of the laws of men, but the laws of God are waste paper to you. Men who are scrupulously honest in giving to man his due and rendering unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, but you do not give unto God that which is God's. You ignore the fact that God ever made laws, or that he is the world's moral governor, or that he will both reward and he will punish. I mean, let's face it, men typically who are non-believers, men that, not just men, but men and women, men and women who are non-believers and nations as a whole go about their lives and their business as if nothing will be considered tomorrow. We live in the moment. We Snapchat our lives. I don't have Snapchat, I just hear about it. Okay, we Snapchat our lives out to our friends and they look at it and they laugh at it and then they forget it because they've got 50 more they're going to look at and you go back and tell them, did you see that Snapchat I sent you? You think, oh, well, let me think about that. Which one was that? Or we, we, we text or Facebook our most intimate and personal details to our friends. But when do we pray? When do we pour out our most intimate details to the Lord? Before us, the one who understands us, the one who can forgive us of those things, the one of whom we will stand in judgment of before. Men and nations act as if sin can be handled by just what? Well, let's just move on from that. Oh, we have to get beyond that. I want to put it where? Behind me. I just want to ignore that stuff and move on with it as if it never occurred. You sin as though sin were a thing of today and would not be thought of tomorrow. This is Spurgeon again. What is it but forgetfulness of God who has sworn that he will by no means clear the guilty? What is it but obliviousness of the fact that God avenges and that he will surely give to every transgression its just recompense of reward? Men and nations will sink into the pit that they are out there digging themselves. Now, are there any examples of this in history? Well, I got... We've got a few for us. Um, some present-day examples first. Now, the first one I can think of, the first one that came to my mind was Wiley Coyote. Okay? You think, well, that tells me a lot about Randy. Okay? And when Wiley Coyote makes all these plans to catch that roadrunner, right? And he gets from Acme, whatever, he orders all this cool stuff in which he's going to get the roadrunner with. And he's got rockets, and he's got anvils, and he's got slingshots and booby traps. But you know what happens so often? The anvil falls on his head, or he sits on the rocket, and the roadrunner goes by, and he lights the rocket, and the rocket goes, and he looks at it, and then it blows up. Okay, that's what happens to him. He makes all these plans, and they come to a bad end, and he pays the price for it. I know he's a cartoon character. I'm sorry if you didn't know that. 
He's just a cartoon character, but that's, that's an example. Now, I've got a couple other examples. In rural New York, a man was killed after being nearly decapitated by a booby trap he set to protect the marijuana plants he was illegally growing. Okay, He was out riding his ATV through his property and ran into one of the wires that he set and hit him right there, killed him. His own booby trap. There was a reclusive pensioner who booby-trapped his home with the intention of killing his estranged family. He died when he inadvertently triggered one of his own devices. Louis Dethy, who was a retired engineer, had hidden a number of booby traps in walls, ceilings, and household objects throughout his three-story home. The traps appeared to be a revenge on the children and grandchildren he claimed had abandoned him. Be nice to your parents. Okay, the booby-trapped the house on you. Another one. Now, this is this is one is pretty well known. Uh, as you may not know the other ones, this one this one is much more well known. Langley and Homer Collier were two brothers in New York that came from very wealthy family, and they became basically kind of eccentric as they got older. They never married, and they lived together. The two old brothers just kind of living in the house. It was a big honking house in in uh, in uh, kind of the New York neighborhood that was kind of Ritzy, and over the years, they collected over 103 tons of useless stuff in their New York home. They were hoarders, obviously. Homer, one of the brothers, went blind, and Langley dedicated himself to caring for Homer. Well, what that meant is that he never took his brother out, never took him to the doctor. In fact, that brother was never seen again when word got out that he was blind and that... um, Langley was going to care for him. Nobody ever saw Homer again. Langley set about filling that mansion with trash and turning it into a maze in which only he could navigate. If you've ever been in the home of a hoarder, that's often what happens is there are walkways throughout the house. Well, imagine a 15 or 20,000 square foot house that has walkways and, and stuff piled up on either side of the walkways. So the maze that he created was littered with trip wires that would drop massive amounts of the hoarded material on anybody who set off the trip wire. A local bank tried to evict the colliers, and a team of locksmiths got to the doors and found the doors impregnable because there were tons of stuff on the other side of the doors. They couldn't get in. So finally the bank gave up trying to foreclose on the property because they just couldn't get in. In 1947, after years of gossip and whispers in the community about the strange Collier brothers, there was a call to the police officer that Homer was dead, or that one of the brothers is dead, and when they got there, they found Homer was dead. Um, they had to break through a window, and they found him. He had died of a heart attack. A couple of weeks later, okay, understand, they are in the house searching through the house. So a couple of weeks later, they found Langley, the other brother, who had triggered his own booby trap and was crushed underneath a pile of the stuff that he hoarded and collected. Sometimes you dig your own pit and you fall into it. How about nations? Have nations ever done this? Well, yeah, lots of nations, but one in particular. It's called the Molotov-Ribbentrop Treaty. Molotov-Ribbentrop. It's a Russian-German treaty. In August of 1939, Hitler and Stalin signed a non-aggression pact called the Molotov-Ribbentrop Treaty. 
had secret protocols that defined the territorial spheres of influence Germany and Russia would enjoy after an invasion of Poland. According to the agreement, Russia would have control over Latvia, Estonia, and Finland, while Germany would gain control over Lithuania and Danzig. Poland was partitioned. Russia got 77,000 acres or square miles of eastern Polish lands with a little over 13 million people were ceded to Russian control and the rest was ceded to German control, all predicated on the fact that they made this treaty and said, Germany, you go in and take Poland and we won't do anything about it because we're going to get some land and we're going to get some people. And this non-aggression pact emboldened the Nazis to go into Poland. So millions, as a result of this, World War II, millions of citizens of the USSR died as a result of the treaty that they signed because they let Russia, they let Germany go into that country. It was interesting, I was in Russia in 1984, and we were in a World War II museum. And, and we come to this about, about the, the start of the war, and I asked the guide about the Molotov-Ribbentrop Treaty. And he said, I've never heard of it. And then I explained it to him, and he laughed at me, as, as if we would sign a treaty that would result in millions of deaths of our own people. And I said, well, that's what you did. That's what you did. You dug a pit, and you dived into it. That's what happens. Well, how about some biblical examples of this? Let's turn back to the portion that we read earlier today, Psalm 7. Just one, should be one page back there. Verse 12. If man does not repent, he, being God, will sharpen his sword. Or we, we saw wet his sword in, in our uh, W-H-E-T. He has bent his bow, made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He, man, has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole that he has made. His mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own pate. Man. This is what happens when you think there are no consequences. When you think there are no, there's no judgment, you start doing something. Before you know it, you're in your own pit that you have dug. As I mentioned earlier, James chapter 1 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. How many of us have been enticed by our own desire, and before we knew it, we were in a pit, and we were suffering from from sin that we pursued ourselves. That'd be all of us. All of us have done that in some fashion or another. James goes on to say, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. Death. One more biblical illustration for us. We, it's in the book of Esther. We won't turn to Esther because I'm just going to give you the narrative of Esther instead of reading all of the eight chapters that it deals with. Esther happens many years after David wrote Psalm 9, uh, probably Esther's late 5th, early 4th century, something along those lines. And the setting of Esther is after Nebuchadnezzar had taken and carried the Jews off to um, Babylonian in, in exile. Okay? 
And Haman, or Haman has concocted a plan to get rid of all the Jews. Now, most of you know the story of Esther. I'm just giving you the, the, the high points of it. So he tricked the king into signing a law on, on which on a certain day all the Jews of the kingdom were to be killed and all their goods confiscated and added into the treasury of the king. Well, the king, I don't mean to say that he was absent-minded or not paying attention, but he signed this because I think all that he heard was, and their goods will be added into the treasury. I mean, that's a good thing, right? Well, Esther, as you, you know, had become the king's queen, and she knew what Haman did because her uncle or adopted dad, Mordecai, had informed her about what the plan was. And Haman hated Mordecai more than anybody else. So Haman devises a plan. He's going to get rid of Mordecai. And as a, as a demonstration of what is going to happen to Mordecai, he builds a gallows 75 feet high. Now, now look at the top of the ceiling. Um, it's higher than I'm going to climb on a ladder, I can tell you that. But it's probably, what, um, 35 feet. So twice as high as this. 75 feet. That's pretty much so everybody in town can see what is going to happen here. Well, we pick up here. Haman has just had the worst day of his life, okay? Because nothing is turning out as he had planned. Now, he has risen to the number two spot. Only the king is above him. He's the king's right-hand man. Uh, he's got this plan in motion to eradicate the Jews. He's going to kill Mordecai. Everything is going according to plan, except on this day it happens. The king calls him in, and he says, um, What should I do to honor a man who is above every other man in the kingdom. And Haman goes, he must be talking about me, right? And Haman says, you should parade him through the street and have it announced to everybody what a great guy that he is, and, and on and on and on. And, and the king looks at Haman and says, great, Mordecai is the guy, you proclaim it. Ooh. The Mordecai is the guy that Haman has built the gallows for so that he can kill him. But he has to walk through the street saying what a great guy he is. So Haman is utterly humiliated over this. And things go bad to worse for him because he's invited to dinner with the king and the queen, Esther. Esther says to the king, If I found favor in your sight, O king, if it please the king, let my life be granted to me for my wish and my people for my request. For I have been sold, and my people sold, probably a re reference to all the goods that were going to be confiscated, um, sold, and my people sold. And then she says, she quotes verbatim the edict, the edict that Haman had written against her people. And she does so, not so much for the king's benefit, but for Haman. So he understands what he has done. We have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed and be killed and annihilated. So the plot is uncovered. The king orders the death of Haman and raises Mordecai up in stature. So Haman makes all these plans. I'm going to kill these people. I'm going to kill Mordecai. I've got the gallows built. It's all set. And he hangs on the gallows. He dug the pit with his own sin. And that's where he went. When we look at Scripture... I think we find the greatest saints, and, and even, even throughout church history, we find the greatest saints weep over the ungodliness of the world around them. It breaks the saints' hearts 
Jesus is saddened by the lack of faith that he finds in Jerusalem. He weeps over Jerusalem. Yet there is a declaration from God himself declaring the doom of those who are unrepentant. Not just individuals, but nations as well. Nations who habitually and purposely pursue what is evil will bring judgment upon themselves. If we ask men, if we ask nations to define sin, they're going to define sin in a way that suits their own purposes. Okay, He's in sin, I'm not. His, his behavior is sinful, my behavior is not. They're going to define it as they please, as it fits their own lifestyle, as it fits their own purposes, to suit the taste of those around me. That's how I'm going to define sin. But, you know, God doesn't check with us on how sin is defined. He defines it. He doesn't adjust his word so that it makes us feel better. He just lays it out there and says, you know, this is what you get if you do not repent. There's no accommodating our views in what God defines as sin. And he, what he defines as wicked and what he defines as digging their own grave, all those who forget him. All those who forget him. And what is to be the final place of those who sink into the pit that they themselves make? Richard Baxter writes, Men in general do not wish to hear this place so much as mentioned, much less described, as the portion and place of the wicked. But it is better far to hear of it than to dwell in it. And it is by hearing of it that they must be persuaded to avoid it. Our Lord represents it as a place originally formed for the reception of the fallen angels and very frequently labors to deter men from sin by considering its terrors. And who it is that reflects upon a lake of fire and brimstone where the wicked will dwell with everlasting burnings and weep and wail and gnash their teeth without so much as the smallest hope of deliverance from it. You think of how long is hell. It is eternal forever. There's no, no relenting the punishment. Now, I'd much rather deal with God's graciousness and his mercy and his sacrifice for sin because that is joyous and wonderful. But the reality of the headlong pursuit of men and even of nations that prepare the way for their own destruction is clear from Scripture. So the call from us today is we have to turn from our sin. Yes, we might, we might declare the name of Christ already and be believers, but we all have sin. And we've got to turn from it and move away from it. We've got to pray for our nation that it turns away from sin. We can't hesitate to declare in a gentle and yet uncompromising way the truth of salvation to those around us who so desperately need the same things that we have experienced in God's grace. So let's pray. Or the realities of judgment are, are, are before us. And, and so often we just don't like to look at them. We don't like to study them. But they are real and we need to be reminded of what happens to those who pursue headlong the things of sin. Of nations that pursue headlong evil and, and have no thought about the real judgment to come. Lord, we ask that our hearts would be tender to those who do not believe, to those who have yet to understand the things of Christ and, and profess Christ and confess their sin. 
that we might be your instruments to communicate that to them, that they might avoid the terribleness of judgment. And even, Lord, we think of well, how is it that we are to, to deal with nations that, that are unrepentant, nations that pursue sin, <coughs> or, or, or our national leaders who we think are, are pursuing what is wrong. We, we, we put them before you and pray that your Holy Spirit will come and redirect them. Your Holy Spirit will come and open their eyes to the truth of Christ, that they might pursue the things that are right and just, that their hearts might be enlivened and give glory to you, Lord, that we might be saved from the things of our own evilness and sin. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.